Yes, December has arrived, and uh, for us here at New Life, that means we begin our annual ritual of launching into a full-scale celebration of the Savior of the world, the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. Of course, if you're a New Lifer, you know that focusing on Jesus and celebrating who he is and all that he has done is not restricted to the month of December around here, something we do all the time, right? If you happen to be a guest with us today, we want you to know that here at New Life, we talk a lot about Jesus Christ. We are enamored and enthralled with this man and his mission. We regularly teach and preach from the greatest book in all the world, the Bible. But we believe what Jesus believed about the Bible, that it's about him. The Bible is one big story, and it's primarily the story of Jesus, and so no matter what portion of the Bible we happen to be studying on any given weekend, we're looking for the Jesus connection. What does this tell us about Jesus Christ and his work and his plan? And when we discover that link, then we can see our way clear to find our place in his story. That's how we're learning to approach this book, the Bible. Well, our December series this year is titled The One, because the Bible portrays Jesus as the one the one and only one who sums up all the longings, hopes, and dreams of humanity. And today, I'm really excited to be talking about Jesus, the one who does amazing things, Jesus, the miracle worker. So you can take the study guide out of your worship folder and follow along with us. And I imagine that no matter what your background is, whether you're raised in church or not, you've heard of at least one or two of Jesus' miracles. So let me ask you this morning, when I talk about Jesus, the miracle worker, what's, what's the miracle of Jesus that comes to your mind first? Think about that. And then just ask your neighbor there, what's, what's the miracle of Jesus that you first think of? Go ahead and ask him. All right, how many said walking on water? Okay, a few of you. How many said uh, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, feeding 5,000 people, turning water into wine? Oh, you guys got my email, didn't you? Okay. Yeah, that actually was the very first miracle that Jesus ever did and the one we're going to be looking at today in more detail. Did you know that the Bible actually reports 36 different miracles that Jesus performed while he was here, and those are just the ones that got recorded in the Bible. At the end of his gospel, the Apostle John tells us that Jesus did many more amazing things that are not recorded in the pages of Scripture. So in my judgment, if there ever was anyone who could rightly be called a legitimate bona fide miracle worker, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He gave Time and time again, abundant evidence that he possessed the power to suspend the laws of nature for his purposes. And technically speaking, that's what a miracle is, suspending the laws of nature so that nature behaves differently than it normally behaves, like water getting hard that you can walk on it. You know, that's not how nature normally behaves. Now, let's ask this question. Why did Jesus do miracles? For what purposes? Did he do them? And the Bible reveals several. First, obviously, to express his love and compassion for people, right? The testimony of Scripture is consistent. Jesus loves people. And he did miracles to express his love to them. 
but also to demonstrate the arrival of the kingdom of God. On one occasion, he said, look, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, you know that the kingdom of God has arrived. And so he did miracles to demonstrate that the kingdom had come. He also performed miracles to reveal his power over all of life, every area of life, whether that was nature or disease or the spirit world or even death. Jesus demonstrated he has power over all of those things. Also, he did miracles to verify his claims and his message. So he spoke a message and then he did miracles to validate and authenticate that message so that people would go, oh, I better listen to this guy. He just walked on water. I better listen to what he has to say. And then finally, he performed miracles to produce faith so that people would observe what he did and entrust their lives to him. Now, on that last one, it's important to note that while some people saw his miracles and did believe in him, other people saw those same miracles and refused to believe in him, and still others believed in his power without trusting in his person. Because what they really wanted was for him to be like their genie on call to give them whatever they wanted whenever they wanted it. And so I think it's just interesting to note that even astounding, jaw-dropping miracles were not sufficient in some cases to melt hard hearts of stone. Now again, what was the very first miracle that Jesus ever performed? There are some writings outside of the scriptures that contend that Jesus as a kid wowed some of his friends by performing miracles. The most notable one is that Jesus, it was said, turned a clay pigeon into an actual bird that flew away. But John sets the record straight in his gospel by making it clear that Jesus' very first miracle took place when he was 30 years old, and it took place at a wedding. Let me read this account to you where this is spelled out for us. It's John chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It reads like this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, so Mary was attending. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, so big jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, there's the miracle, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And then John's commentary, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's an important phrase. And his disciples believed in him. Now, as I've read this story over the years, perhaps like you, it raised a lot of questions in my mind. Like, why did Jesus do this miracle first? I mean, why didn't he lead off with something a little more bombastic? This seems like nothing more than 
preventing embarrassment and keeping a party going strong. And then what's the deal with how he treated his mom? I thought Jesus was the perfect, obedient son. What's with that? And then why did he seem to say no at first, but then turn around and do something about it? And then why did he use those huge stone jars as containers rather than some actual drinking vessels if he wanted people to drink it? And then John says this miracle was a sign. A sign of what? What what did it point to? And how did it reveal his glory? And of course, the big question, making wine? What the heck? I thought Jesus was a Christian. And Christians are well known for being against drinking alcohol in any way. But here's the very founder of Christianity livening up a party by creating 150 gallons of the best fruit of the vine that people had ever tasted in their lives. What's going on with that? I can just see the next day's headlines in the local paper. Teetotalers enraged by winemaking debacle. (laughs) Devotees perplexed by founders' controversial antics. (laughs) So many questions are raised in our 21st century minds by this first century incident. And you're going to need to study this more on your own because we're not going to be able to answer all those questions today to your satisfaction. We'll tackle some, though. But what is going on here? Let's look at it a little bit more closely. What we see first is that Jesus arrives in a little town called Cana for a very festive occasion. What's the occasion? It's a wedding. It's a festive occasion. Weddings are a big deal for sure in our day. But in that culture... They were a huge, huge deal. Remember that back then there weren't nearly the variety of entertainment options for people to engage in as we have today. There weren't 500 channels of satellite TV and malls to go to. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And so when a young couple came together to be married, everybody showed up. Like the whole county would show up and they would stay for days. Sometimes up to two weeks. It was a big, big feast, a big festival. Now, Cana was just a few miles from Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. And some scholars believe that Mary's behavior here indicates that these may have been family friends of their family that were coming together in this marriage. And Mary Mary was like an assistant to the host, wanting to help make sure that everything was going smoothly. So just in your mind now, picture this very festive occasion. There's music playing, there's lots of laughing and talking and dancing, and of course, there was food everywhere. In verse 8, it mentions the master of the feast. You say, well, who's that? Well, our modern equivalent would be like an MC, host kind of person, a life of the party person, probably a close friend of the groom, and he was responsible for making sure that everybody was having fun, everybody was having a good time. Hey, everybody, check this out over here, or let's do this, or let's play this party game now. That that guy, and of course he was also the go-to person if something went wrong. And of course, the worst thing that could go wrong, apart from the bride catching her dress on fire, which is always really bad, was for the food to be in short supply or the wine to run out. That would be a major big-time downer at a feast like this. Ah, yes, the wine. Let's talk about this, because for some of you, the notion of Jesus turning water into the wine is no no big deal. 
But for some of us who grew up in certain kinds of churches, this story gives us heartburn. Wine was always bad, evil, wrong. Just like beer, rum, vodka, cigarettes, marijuana, and heroin, and rock music, and discotheques, and Hollywood movies, and communists. All of those things just kind of got wrapped up and lumped together and put in a big, dark, smelly bin called bad stuff. Stuff that you should stay away from if you were a good Christian person. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Now, I don't have time to get into all that, but any sermon, any sermon I ever heard on this story always had Jesus turning water into Welch's grape juice. <laughs> always. Problem is... That view has problems. It's kind of indefensible. Study it for yourself. There were no refrigeration systems back then. The Middle East climate is very hot. Fermentation happened. It happened. Natural process. Remember, they didn't have Coke, Pepsi, iced tea, Mountain Dew back then. IBC root beer. It wasn't around, unfortunately for them. Kool-Aid had not been invented yet. Milk went bad very fast. Even water was often impure. In fact, one of the ways they would purify water back then because they didn't have purification systems was to mix it with wine. And so then you had mixed drinks, I guess. <laughs> so I'm just telling you, simply stated, wine was the drink of choice in that culture, much like our milk or pop might be today. And I'm convinced that Jesus turned water into a fermented drink suitable for the cultural celebration of his day. Wine. Now, is that to say that Jesus is all excited for you to go out and get smashed tonight? I think not. There are plenty of biblical warnings against the foolishness of turning your faculties over to any substance or anything other than the Holy Spirit of God. Be not drunk with wine, the Bible says, but be filled by the Holy Spirit of God. There are some of you, and I hope you know who you are, who should never, ever touch a drop of alcohol again in your life. Never. Hopefully you know who you are. For your own sake, for your family's sake, for your church's sake, for your testimony of Christ. Others of you, though, should probably consider having a glass of wine sometime. <laughs> if for no other reason than to break the stranglehold that legalistic, rule-keeping Christianity has had on your heart for years and years. And you need to know your own threshold, right? Now, if you're underage, drinking is out of bounds, period. Don't go out and say, Pastor Steve said I could go get... Hammered with my friends tonight, I will deny it a thousand times, ten thousand times. I did not say that. If you're underage, drinking is out, period. What I'm saying is that wine is not evil. Like many good gifts God has created, it can be and has been misused and abused, right? Like many things. All right, back to the wedding. Let's say it's day three of this wedding celebration, music's playing. The bride and groom are all smiles, although after three days, they're probably tired of smiling. People are laughing and dancing and eating and drinking. Uncle Harold, of course, is passed out over under the fig tree like he always is. It's all wonderful until somebody notices that the wine coolers are gone. We're out. And for any host, 
you know that's an embarrassing situation, an extremely embarrassing situation. I remember back in the early days of this church, we used to do these annual stewardship banquets where we would invite all the members of the church and we'd feed them this big meal and then we'd ask them to pledge their financial support for the upcoming year. And one year I remember we ran out of meat. And uh, I can still remember the look on Fred Donaldson's face. He'd stood in line for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes and I saw him walking back to his seat with his plate and had some, I think, some green beans and some pasta and no meat! And the look on his face was somewhere between disgusted and outright mad. (laughs) And I've often wondered if you adjusted your pledge that year accordingly based on that experience. It was horrible. When you're serving a lot of people and you run out of food or drink, that's a problem, isn't it? If you've ever been in that situation. It's a social faux pas that you want to avoid at all costs. Now, it's not a huge world-altering problem in the grand scheme of things, but it, it is a problem. Well, that's what happened at this wedding. And Jesus' mom notices what's about to happen, and she decides to notify her son. But let's be honest, the little exchange that they have is a little bit mystifying, is it not? Let's replay it. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. What? Well, first off, in my mind, it's very reasonable that Mary should bring this potential social embarrassment to Jesus' attention. She feels some responsibility to keep her relatives from being embarrassed. She knows who her son is. He hasn't performed any miracles yet, but she heard the angels. She knows what he's capable of. I think that Mary wanted her son to do something to alleviate the situation without really knowing exactly what that would be. But his response to her sounds harsh, kind of brusque, kind of off-putting, does it not? Woman? Now, the NIV had some sentimentalists on their team, and they softened it a little bit. They translated, dear woman. (laughs) But there's no dear in the original text, okay? It's not warranted. Woman? Why not, hey, mom, chill out. It's going to be okay, you know? Something a little more warm and family-like. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? Which sounds, again, kind of distant and brusque and dismissive, and then the really mysterious statement, my hour has not yet come. What hour? The hour to start doing miracles? The right moment to do this miracle? But if that's what he meant, then why did he immediately turn around and do a miracle? No, it's not my time, woman. Oh, all right. It'll make you happy. Okay. I mean, we're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the greatest movement leader in the history of the world. We can't assign to him the same relational interactions that we would assign to each other. This was calculated. There's something more going on here. All right, you're going to have to hold all that in your mind for a few minutes. Just hold it all in tension there. We'll come back to it. Mary must have suspected that Jesus was going to do something because she puts the servants on alert. Hey, whatever he tells you, be ready. But then Jesus looks at the servants and he gives them a very puzzling set of instructions, or really one instruction. Hey, see those jars over there? Go fill them with water. Now, 
those were not drinking glasses. These were huge, heavy stone vessels with a capacity of 20 to 30 gallons each. So big and heavy. And you know that the Jews had a variety of washings and ceremonial cleansings that they would do, right? As part of their religious ritual. In fact, before they would go into the temple to worship, they would wash their hands. And it wasn't for physical cleansing, it was for spiritual cleansing. It was acknowledging we're sinful people going in to worship a holy God. And these stone jars were those like those that were filled with water and used for those kinds of washings. And apparently there were six of them nearby and empty. So Jesus tells some servants, go find some water somewhere and fill them up. And that would have taken some time to go out and find a spring of water or whatever they use and get some pails and buckets and back and forth. And then finally, they were filled up to the very brim. And now the miracle, verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. A stunning transformation had taken place. Now, this is that master of the feast. This is that MC guy who's in charge of things going well. Imagine his thought processes as this situation is unfolding. He is no doubt becoming frantic. As he sees the wine supply getting lower and lower and lower, he's thinking, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He dreads the thought of having to go to his friend, the groom, and tell him that they're going to have to cut the party short and send everybody home because they've run out of wine. He does not want to have that conversation. That would be a huge Social embarrassment of the highest order, cast a shadow over the whole affair, it would ruin the wedding feast and probably make the bride cry. And you do not want to make the bride cry on her wedding day. That is horrible. And so this guy's no doubt frustrated and anxious and worried. But now here comes a servant, probably a grinning servant with a goblet in his hand, smiling and saying, Hey, my friend, check this out. Your worries are over. He takes the cup and he peers down into the sparkling red liquid in the cup. He takes a sip. I'm sure he lets out a huge, ah, that's what I'm talking about. Where did you get this stuff? (laughs) But Before the servant can answer, I, I imagine the master of the feast breaking out into a big grin and thinking, you know what? I'll bet my buddy the groom did this. I'll bet he had this hidden stash over here that nobody knew about. And just when the party was about ready to go south, he makes this big splash and brings out the best, choicest wine. What a guy. What a guy my friend is. Is that where it came from? Did the groom have a stash? No. The only people who really knew where it came from were Jesus and Mary and the servants. Somehow, in ways we are not told, Jesus Christ altered the molecular structure of H2O and turned it into the choicest, headiest wine. So this was a miracle, wasn't it? It was a miracle of creative transformation. It's the same thing he would do later with loaves of bread and and fish. It's the same thing he did back at the dawn of time when he spoke and things came into being. Stuff was created. It's a miracle. Water doesn't naturally transform into wine. Something and someone had to act upon it to affect this change. And so through either his thoughts or his words, Jesus acted upon that water, and the result was 150 gallons of the best wine that human lips have ever tasted. So it was both 
quantity and quality. That's Jesus for you. The master of the feast didn't know all that. He just knew his troubles were over. (laughs) And he's so happy he goes to the groom, who back then was called the bridegroom. Sounds kind of weird to our ears. The bridegroom. And he said this, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, translated, when they're totally inebriated, then they bring out the poor wine, because no one will know the difference. But you have broken tradition. You've kept the best wine until now. You saved the best till last, and now the party is going to ramp up to a whole new level. We're going to have a great time. Nicely done. Well, the groom's probably like, I don't know what you're talking about, but whatever. I don't care. It's my wedding day. You know, my mind's on other things. I'm just glad it's here and the party can go on. And so the party goes on. And the people continue celebrating. Disaster, thankfully, has been averted. A few people know the little secret. And John finishes his account by saying, This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what's really going on here? What is this all about? Why did Jesus lead off with this miracle? And John says it's a sign. A sign of what? And how did it reveal his glory? Well, I think it's when we stop and reflect more deeply on these things that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can open our eyes to the significant revelation that was taking place. Let's see if we can understand what this miracle pointed to. And then we're going to draw some personal applications for us, okay? John said the miracle was a sign, a sign that revealed Jesus' glory. And in the Bible, the glory of God is the sum of all that he is. It's his identity. It's, it's the sum of his nature and his character and his attributes all bundled up together. That's the glory of God. And so he contends that this miracle revealed in a glorious way the true identity of this 30-year-old man named Jesus. How so? Well, several ways. First, it shows us that Jesus is the powerful creator. Amen? Say that with me. Powerful creator. You try turning water into wine sometime. Good luck with that. It's not going to go well. Jesus is here revealed as someone set apart from the rest of humanity who can do stuff like this. As I said, he would do many more miracles of creation over the course of the next several years. Jesus was revealed in this miracle as the powerful creator of all things. But not only that. I don't know if you thought about him like this before. Think about this. By doing this miracle... Jesus basically saved a party from going down the tubes, right? From going flat. And that tells us something about Jesus. We were introduced to the master of the feast at that wedding, but I think what we're seeing here is Jesus giving us a preview of the eternal feast of the ages where he would preside as the true and better master of the feast. He's the Lord of the feast who will make sure the eternal party keeps going and going and going forever and the abundant supply is never in question. Now, some of you have never thought of Jesus that way. 
but you need to. Listen to an Old Testament description of the kingdom, the full and final kingdom of the future. This is from Isaiah 25. Listen now. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Does that sound like your Lord? He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. You know, when the Old Testament portrays life in the full and final kingdom of God, it depicts a feast, an abundance of delicious food, wine flowing like a river, dancing and joy and festive celebration. Now, for sure, in this life, there will be some trouble and some tribulation and some suffering. Jesus himself experienced that, and his followers will too. But that's not the end game. That's a means to an end. The end is a feast. In fact, in Matthew 25, Jesus called the kingdom of God a feast. He didn't say, it starts with a feast, and then we're going to get on to other stuff. He said, it's a feast. A never-ending party. Wow. Jesus is revealed in this miracle as the true and better master of the feast, the Lord of the feast. But that's not all. He's also revealed, his identity is revealed as the true bridegroom. And I think this is hinted at in the little exchange between Jesus and his mother, which is so mystifying. The best explanation I've heard of as far as what was going on there comes from a guy I really uh, like named Tim Keller. Keller believes that the tone and content of Jesus' remarks to Mary indicate that his mind was not there, that his mind was a million miles away. You ever been someplace? That's where your body was, but your mind is long ways away. So what do you think Jesus was thinking about? Two things, Keller says. First, remember this. Jesus was a single man who was attending a wedding. It would be pretty normal for a guy in that situation to be thinking forward to his own wedding someday. We've done dozens and dozens of weddings here at New Life. And sometimes I'll be back in the green room with the groomsmen. And the single groomsmen will be talking. And they'll be talking about their wedding day. I wonder what that's going to be like. I wonder who's going to be at my wedding. I wonder who I'm going to marry. I wonder when it's all going to take place. Now, for Jesus, we know he would remain single for the the duration of his time on earth, right? But the Bible tells us that one day Jesus will be married. Did you know that? Read Revelation 19. Read Revelation 21. The Bible opens with a wedding and it closes with the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to be a wedding feast to end all wedding feasts, and Jesus will be united with his bride for all of eternity. And who is the bride, you ask? It's the church. It's the collection of all individuals from all the ages who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, purchased by him, pure and being prepared to dwell with him forever. I believe Keller's right. I think Jesus was there at that wedding, but thinking about his wedding day one day, longing for that day. But Keller says that would have led him to think about what it would cost him to have his bride. 
There would be a price to pay, a dowry to pay for Jesus to have a pure, spotless, purified bride to dwell with forever. And Jesus knew it. So I believe Jesus was thinking about his wedding day and also what it would cost to have his bride. And if you doubt that, I'm going to prove it to you. Think about it. What did Jesus do? He turned water into wine. Are there any other instances in the Bible of water being turned into wine? Not exactly, unless you count when God turned the water of the Nile River into another red liquid, blood. That was one of the ten plagues against Egypt. But are blood and wine ever linked up in the Bible? Oh, yes. Remember in the upper room when Jesus held a cup of wine and said, this cup is my blood, which is shed for you. Here at the wedding, Jesus turns water into wine, and John called it a sign. A sign of what? I believe a sign of his redemptive mission to shed his blood and die so that he could be married to a pure and spotless bride one day. But maybe you're not convinced by that, that that's what Jesus was thinking about. Well, then let me ask this. Why did Jesus choose those big jars, those purification vessels, to create this wine in as the containers for those? Is there any significance in that? Containers that every Jew present at that wedding feast would associate with purification and cleansing? Do you think there's some dots that need to be connected here? And if you're still not convinced, this is going to push you over the edge. Remember again what Jesus said to his mom. My hour is not, is not yet come. What did he mean? What hour? He can't mean that it's not time for him to do a miracle yet because he turns around and does a miracle. What hour is he referring to? Almost all commentators are agreed on this. The hour of his death. In the book of John, almost every time you see, my hour is not yet come, my hour, my hour, my hour is now come, it's talking about his death, his crucifixion. And so I believe that Jesus was standing there at that wedding in Cana, thinking about his own future wedding in heaven, and also contemplating his death that would be necessary for that wedding to ever happen, to ever take place. And as a result, he was troubled in his spirit, and his tone and his demeanor with his mother reflects that. Listen now, Mary was concerned about this wedding, but Jesus was thinking about that wedding. Mary's thinking about the wine needed to revive this feast. Jesus is thinking about the wine needed to ensure that feast. Mary's thinking about fixing an immediate problem. Jesus is thinking about solving an eternal dilemma. Mary is obsessed with this hour. Jesus is agonizing over that See, Jesus is not only the true bridegroom, but he would lay down his very life for his bride to secure her purity and devotion for all time. He would become the ultimate purifier of human hearts, something that a thousand washings could never accomplish. But his blood would accomplish. So John says this water into wine miracle was a sign. A sign of his identity, yes, but also a sign of his mission. The newly created red wine points to the red blood that Jesus would shed on the cross within three years. It would cleanse his people, his bride, from her sin. 
And Jesus deliberately created that wine in these purification vessels so that we wouldn't miss the analogy. That's what I believe. One writer reflected on this very deeply, this moment at the wedding, and he put it this way. Listen, Jesus was sitting there in the midst of all this joy, sipping the coming sorrow. Why? There's no way that Jesus can think about what it would take to give his bride the cup of joy and gladness at their wedding one day without thinking about the cup that he himself would have to drink. So there he was in the midst of great joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that we could sit here in the midst of the sorrows of this life and sip the coming joy. Man, there's a whole lot more going on in this story than first meets the eye, isn't there? You get all that? In a way, maybe you've never realized before, this strange miracle was a truly significant revealing, unveiling of who this 30-year-old man was, who he really was, and what he came to do. Now, what's in here for us? Let me give you some hooks to hang some truth on for your life, for your personal life, and for mine today from this story. Do I have four numbers there? I might give you five. I've got ten. I don't have time. So number one, listen, you can take even the little things to Jesus. Think about it. In the grand scheme of things, what Jesus, the miracle Jesus performed was not a, a, a big deal. As one man said, with this opening miracle, Jesus is basically wiping the egg off the face of a disorganized young couple who didn't plan things out well enough. <laughs> this is not healing leprosy. This is not raising the dead. This is not feeding starving people. This is saving somebody from social embarrassment, a relatively little thing, but not to them, right? This miracle tells us we can bring even the little things to Jesus. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think, you know, Jesus is busy running the universe. What's my little problem? You ever have the thoughts like that? I think this is telling us, no, 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 bring those little things to Jesus. You got a test coming up? Go ahead and pray about it. Bring it to Jesus. You got a deadline to meet at work? Bring it up. You you need to buy a car? Bring it up to Jesus. It's okay. You can bring the little things to Jesus. It's okay. Or the not-so-little things. But then when you do that, number two, submit to his timing. (laughs) Have you found out yet that God's timing and your timing are different? Have you found that out yet? Think about this story, you know. I'm sure Mary wants Jesus to do something right now, and Jesus kind of gives her almost like a brush off, and he tells the servants to go get some water. You know, it's like, what's... If you are a Christian, here's how your Christian life is likely to go. You're going to bring your little things to Jesus. You're going to bring the stuff in your life to Jesus. And you're going to stand there and you're going to go, what's going on, you know? If I were God, I would have... I have some 25-year prayers that haven't been answered yet. Do you? I have some eight-year prayers that have not been answered yet. And if I was God... I would have answered them a long time ago. There's a reason I'm not God and he is. I think with Mary there, when when she was saying that to the servants, do whatever he tells you, I think what she was saying is, do we know better than him? He's the son of God. 
learn to trust God's timing. That's what it comes down to, trust. You know the, the quote, you've heard it before, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. That's really what we're talking about. But God, I, this was supposed to happen, you know. He knows. He knows. Submit to God's timing. Third, see Christianity correctly. You know, some people reject Christianity, but what they're rejecting is not Christianity. They're rejecting a false caricature of Christianity that goes like this. Be good. Keep the rules. Keep your nose clean. Don't mess up. Grind it out. Is that Christianity at its core? Or is that a false, fake, counterfeit brand of Christianity? Yeah. You know what Christianity is about at its core? Grace. Grace. There's a picture of grace right here in this story. Who got the credit for bringing the best wine out at the end? Who got the credit? The bridegroom did, right? Everybody thought, what a great guy. Who did the work? Jesus did the work. Jesus did the work. He got the credit. That's the way salvation works. Jesus does the work. We get the credit. We get his righteousness. We get his record of perfect obedience credited to our accounts. That's grace. That's what Christianity is. Not keep the rules. See Christianity correctly. And then number four, believe in Jesus. John wrote his book for that purpose. He laid out seven signs, seven miraculous signs for this purpose that people might read it and believe in Jesus. You say, well, I believed in Jesus in 1974. Well, that's great. But what about right now? The word believe in the Bible never means just signing off on some beliefs. It never means mental assent to a a series of statements. It means entrusting your life to a person, giving him your life. And you can do that in 1974, and you can do it again today because you've just read about another miracle of Jesus Christ. Do you feel faith arising in your heart? Yeah, that's the man I'm committing my life to. That's the man I'm living for. That's the man I want to be with forever. Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Well, I'll throw one more in for good measure. Just reiterating the words of Mary to the servants. I must have told 100 people this in the last year. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do that. (laughs) Whatever Jesus tells you to do, whatever Jesus is telling you to do, do it. Just do it. Let's, Let's pray together.